morning, Fireside Church. It is an honor to be worshiping with you this Sunday morning and studying God's Word together. My name is Brooke Park, and I have known Kate and Andy for about 10 years, um, and I am excited to be sharing some of God's Word with you all today. It is a great honor and a great privilege. Um, like many of you, I have just been spurred on in my faith by watching Kate and Andy trust God in all seasons and through really, really hard circumstances. And like you all, I am grieving the loss of Ellie. I'm grieving alongside you all. And um, I think that in times of grief, it can bring up a lot of questions for us. You know, when we grieve, they, we shed tears. Sometimes there's anger. Sometimes there's confusion. Um, we can ask questions like, where is God? Why does he feel silent? And sometimes we can despair and wonder, what is God doing? Why does he feel so far away? 2020 was a hard year around the globe, and 2021 is not off to a better start. And I think there have been many types of loss and grief this past year. There's been a lot of fear and anxiety. There's been depression and loneliness, isolation, confusion, division. So today I wanna to offer you all some hope, hope in the midst of the doubt and questions. I cannot answer all of your questions and I probably will not resolve the whys of this world, but I do hope to point you to the one, the one who is our hope in the midst of it all. In my life, I've had many seasons of doubt and all of them have been as a Christian. I think sometimes we, we believe that people of faith don't struggle. They don't have doubt, they don't have questions. And that couldn't be further from the truth. When I became a Christian, trusting in God answered a lot of life's questions for me, but it also raised new questions. It didn't solve all of my problems. And so I find that in seasons of heartbreak, in seasons of confusion, in seasons of grief and doubt and pain, I cling to God's truth for comfort. God's word is true in all seasons, in all cultures, in every time period. In fact, when I don't feel God's presence or he seems silent, I go back to the grand story, the meta-narrative of God, the big story of God and his people. I cling to the promises of his word and his character. So today we are going to zoom out. We are going to step back from this hard, dark season in the life of Fireside, and we are gonna get a wide angle lens at the story of God. And we are going to see how we fit in the grand narrative of God and see if we can't find comfort and hope for today. So let's start at the beginning in Genesis. Genesis chapter one, verses one through three. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was. So in the beginning was God. He was always there. No one created him, but he decides to create. And with the power of his word, he speaks the world into existence. 
He creates the cosmos, the day and the night, the earth and the sea, the, the fruit and the vegetation and the animals. And he creates humans and he creates us in his image. Now, whether you believe in a literal seven days of creation or whether you believe that Genesis 1 is Hebrew poetry, neither of those matter. The point of the story is that God is the author of this world, that God is the creator and he created this world and everything in it, and that he has a plan and an order and a purpose to this world. This world, this earth, you are not an accident. And the God placed the man and the woman in the Garden of Eden with himself. Humanity was meant to live and breathe and work and dwell in the presence of God. Chapter two, verses seven through nine. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth and breathed, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east where he put the man whom he had, whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God creates and he creates this beautiful ordered world that is in perfect harmony. And he creates a man and a woman and he places them in the garden to rule and subdue the earth and his presence will be with them. And they are meant to dwell together but only three chapters in and an enemy appears on the scene. There is a threat to the Garden of Eden and to the man and the woman. You see, God had given one commandment. He had provided this whole garden full of good things for Adam and Eve, but he had asked for one area of trust and obedience. He asked them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One commandment to trust and obey God. But the serpent comes and he deceives Adam and Eve and they choose sin. They don't trust or obey God's word. And as a result, everything in creation breaks down. In chapter three, we see God speak and he tells Adam and Eve the ramifications of their sin. The man and the woman will have struggles with one another. They will struggle in their relationships with each other, with their children. Work will become toilsome. The serpent will continue to wage war on humanity. Even the ground, the earth is cursed. And we see the evidence of that today. We see that we live in a broken world, a world that is full of decay with disease and natural disaster. Everything in creation breaks down as a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion. And in chapter three, they are cast out of Eden, out of the presence of God. Humanity is now marked by sin and struggle and death, and they are in exile. But even in the bleakest moment, God offers grace. He does not abandon Adam and Eve. He does not destroy the world and start over. He does not kill them on the spot for their disobedience. Instead, he launches a plan of redemption. He tells them that one day there will be a seed, an offspring that will come and defeat the enemy. And in their rebellion and in their death, and even in their exile, God has not abandoned his people. 
So we continue reading Genesis, and it does not take long to see the ramifications of sin. Adam and Eve's very first son murders his own brother, and the sin only gets worse generation after generation. It gets more violent. In fact, by the time Noah is on the scene, only six chapters into Genesis, it says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him in his heart. Grieved him. It's interesting here. God does not say that he is angry. He says he is grieved. Heartbroken at the evil and the harm and the destruction of humanity. And so God chooses Noah to continue the line of humanity. Rather than wipe the entire slate clean, God chooses a remnant, a man who walks with him. And God makes a way of salvation for Noah through the ark. And we read this story, and for most of us, it's a familiar story. We grew up with Noah's Ark nursery decorations and Noah's Ark kid songs, but it's a very adult story. It's a grim story of God wiping the earth clean with the flood. Jen Wilkins says, if the flood is this terrible of a solution, how terrible was the problem? God cleanses the world and seems to start over. In fact, there's similar language with Noah that he used with Adam and Eve in the garden. He, he commands Noah to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he makes a covenant with Noah that he will never again destroy the earth with a flood. So the God of the universe creates this beautiful world and he sets humanity in it to rule creation. And they rebel and they become full of wickedness and sin. And God basically gives humanity a do-over by sparing the one family that trusts in him. God is going to start over with the one who is faithful, Noah. Now, anyone who parents or works with kids is familiar with the do-over. The do-over is when you hear your kids screaming and fighting because they've done something wrong and they're at each other's throats and they're going back and forth and you have to intervene and you help them reset and you give them a chance to start again and this time do it right. So here we have humanity's do-over. It's a fresh start with a faithful family who trusts God. And do we get it right? No. This should be the happily ever after, but unfortunately it's not how it goes. Noah gets off the ark and he builds a garden and it's a vineyard. And like Adam and Eve, he chooses sin in this garden and so do his children. And within one chapter, we see that the problem of sin is not solved. A do-over is not enough to solve the brokenness of the world. But God does not abandon his people. A few more generations come along and Abraham enters the story. And God calls Abraham to follow him. Literally, he calls Abraham to leave his home, to leave his family, to leave the people that he knows, and to follow God to trust God and follow him to a new land. This is an incredible act of trust and obedience for Abraham. And God does something amazing with Abraham that sets the stage for the rest of the story. He makes another covenant. But this covenant is different. In the Noahic covenant, God promises never to destroy humanity again, even though they are still sinful. But in this covenant, God makes a covenant of blessings. 
covenants or oaths or promises. And throughout scripture, we see that God makes promises to his people and then he fulfills them. He is always faithful to do as he said he would do. So in Genesis chapter 12, God covenants to Abraham that he will give him a land, a place, a home, that he will make him a nation, a people, that he will make Abraham's name great and that he will be a blessing. Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And then in Genesis 15, God has a covenant ceremony. Now covenant ceremonies were common practices in the ancient Near East. So this would have been a ceremony that Abraham would be familiar with. In Genesis 15, it says, he, and God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a pigeon. And he brought them all, and he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be affl afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land. God reminds Abraham of the promises he made to him in chapter 12. And this time God makes a covenant with Abraham. What is described in chapter 15 is a description of what a covenant ceremony would have looked like between a suzerain and a vassal. A suzerain would have been a ruler or king and a vassal would be a servant or someone in need of protection. And so typically in a suzerain vassal covenant ceremony, the vassal would pledge loyalty to the suzerain in exchange for protection and help. And to seal their oath, they would cut the animals in half and the vassal would walk through walk through the cut pieces, in effect saying, may I end up like these slain animals if I do not keep the stipulations of the covenant. But what we see in Genesis 15 is that Abraham is asleep during the ceremony and God is the one represented through the, through the fire and the torch. God is the one who passes through the pieces, taking on the full responsibility of the covenant himself. It is an unconditional covenant for Abraham with no stipulations. God puts his own blood on the line for the covenant. God will be faithful to Abraham and his descendants, even if they are not faithful to him. God does not abandon his people. And here is the wild part about Abraham and Sarah's story. God promises to Abraham that he will make him a great nation, but Abraham and Sarah are barren. In fact, the Bible says that she is post-menopausal. But God is faithful to his promises. And when Sarah is old and beyond childbearing years, God miraculously provides the promised son. Now I want to caveat this story by saying it is not a story about infertility. 
This is not a message to hurting couples that if you just pray hard enough, God will give you a promised child. That would be a cruel misapplication of this verse. This is a story about God and his redemptive plan. It is about God setting in motion a plan for a miraculous promised son, a son that is to come and a son that we will see glimpses of and echoes of all the way back in Genesis. And Abraham and Sarah are complicated. It's a complicated story. From the time that God promises Abraham a, a son, he promised Abraham a son when Abraham was 75 years old and Isaac is not born until Abraham is a hundred years old. That is 25 years of waiting, 25 years of wondering, God, are you going to do as you said you would do? And in their 25 years of waiting, they doubt, they struggle, they take things into their own hands. We see that on the pages of Genesis. We see them doubt God's promise and try to force a plan their own way. But as Jen Wilkins says, Abraham is a doubter who wants to believe. And that is a different kind of doubt. That, that is a doubt that returns to God again and again. And 25 years later, after the waiting, God makes good on his promise and Isaac is born. And Isaac goes on to be the grandfather of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now God is with his people and the people wind up in Egypt. As you saw a few weeks ago, when Jim Singleton shared the story of Joseph, Israel ends up in Egypt, but the Egyptians feel threatened by the vast number of the Hebrews. And so they enslave them and they are enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. 400 years, the people of God are oppressed by Egyptians. 400 years, they cry out in their suffering. I imagine grandparents, telling stories to their children and their grandchildren of the promises of God and generations coming and going, waiting for God to deliver them. And I imagine they wondered, where is God? Why is he silent? But God had not abandoned his people. God raises up Moses, a deliverer who will, come, who will confront Pharaoh. And this story is also familiar to many of you. Moses comes before Pharaoh and he demands that he let the Israelites go free. But Pharaoh has a hard heart and doesn't listen. And so God sends plague after plague to Egypt, but Pharaoh does not free God's people. So finally, the 10th plague is death, death of the firstborn of every house. But God provides a way of salvation for the, Israel, for the Israelites. If they kill a lamb without blemish, and post the blood on the doorpost, the angel of death will pass over them and they will be saved. And this is the final plague where Pharaoh finally lets the Israelites go free. Now we know that it is a dramatic ending because Pharaoh changes his mind and chases the Hebrews with his army and God parts the Red Sea so that the Israelites can go through to safety. And then he destroys all of the Egyptian chariots with the sea. And we see once again, that God does not abandon his people. He sets the captives free from slavery. He saves them from their enemies who seek their destruction. He covenants with them knowing their unfaithfulness. God does not abandon his people. And surprise, surprise, the story does not go smoothly from there. Are you figuring out the patterns yet? Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 
all record the cycle of unfaithful Israel and faithful God. The faithful God who leads them to the promised land that he promised Abraham generations before. And then the people ask for a king. They want to be like the other nations and they don't want God to be their king. So they reject God. First Samuel chapter eight verses four through nine says, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came before Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a judge, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways the king who shall reign over them. So God warns them through Samuel that this is not going to go well for them, that a king will take and take and take, but he grants them their requests and Paul is, and Saul is appointed king. And Saul is an unfaithful king, a paranoid king. And he takes and he takes and he takes from the people. And when he dies, David becomes king. And many of you are familiar with David as a man after God's own heart. But David has some major flaws. Like if I saw his resume and he was applying for a, a ministry job, I would probably turn him, turn him down because David, like everyone before him, is unfaithful. He falls into sin. He falls into temptation. He is not a perfect king, but he follows God and he has a repentant heart. And so God makes a covenant with David that sounds remarkably similar to the promises that he made to Abraham. Now, therefore, you shall say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pastures, from following the sheep, so that you would be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. When he commits an iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God promises an eternal kingly line for David. Though the people reject God as their king, God does not abandon his people. And David does give birth to a son, Solomon, who builds a house for the Lord. Solomon builds the temple, the holy permanent place in the promised land where God dwells with his people, where his glory dwells. And this seems like it should be the happily ever after to the story. Israel is a nation with a kingdom and God is dwelling among them. But Solomon launches the kingly line into patterns of idol worship. 
and the kingdom of Israel splits in two with the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And both kingly lines are filled with wicked kings who worship idols. These idolatrous kings lead Israel astray. And God sends prophet after prophet after prophet to warn the people and to call them to repentance. But judgment is inevitable and Israel winds up in exile. And as we have seen time and time again, the hearts of the people are broken. They are marred by sin. They cannot be faithful. But God sends hope. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 28, I will take you up from the nations and I will gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. He promises them that a day is coming when his spirit will dwell in them and he will cleanse them from all their sin. And he will give them a new heart that will cause them to walk in obedience. God has not abandoned his people. But then the world is quiet. For 400 years, there are no prophets. 400 years of Israel wondering, where is God? Why is he silent? What is he doing? Is our promised king coming? But in the exile, in the foreign empires, in the quiet, God has not abandoned his people. On a starry night in Bethlehem, a son is born, a promised son from the line of Abraham. A king from David's royal line is born. He has a miraculous virgin birth because God is his father. He is the son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. And he is nothing like the people expected. They expected power and force, pomp and circumstance. And instead they got a servant king, a king who displays power through redemptive healings, a king who points to God and gives him the glory in all things, a king who is finally faithful, perfectly and completely a conqueror who will absorb the punishment of sin by dying in our place and who will defeat the power of sin and death through his resurrection. This is the one the world was waiting for, the promised seed who would crush the serpent, the perfect Adam who would withstand temptation and choose God, not sin, the deliverer who would free us from the captivity of sin, the unblemished lamb whose blood would spare us from death, the everlasting king who would rule. And the real kicker is that it was God himself who came to dwell, Emmanuel, God with us. In suffering, in rebellion, in years of quiet, God has not abandoned his people, but the people abandoned God. Over and over in scripture, we see the pattern of men and women who refuse to submit to a holy God. 
We see people who wanted to be faithful to God, but their hearts continue to fail them. But God made a way. He did not abandon his people. But the key phrase in this is his people. God has made a new covenant with us in Christ. And like the covenant that God made with Abraham, this is a covenant that cost the shedding of blood. It is a covenant where the king promises us Christ's faithfulness for our unfaithfulness, that Christ's righteousness will cover our unrighteousness. But you have to be in the covenant. You have to be in the covenant. Look at the story. Our sin and rebellion always lead to exile. Take it as a warning. God is faithful, always, gracious, continually, but God is just and he does not overlook sin and rebellion. And rebellion has a cost. It is judgment and exile. But the invitation in scripture is clear. In God's faithfulness, he made a way for us to be grafted in, to be spiritual children of Abraham. He sent the ark of salvation, a deliverer from death, a savior. And we need to only accept the gift of Christ. When we enter into the family of God through Christ, God seals us with his spirit, his presence, his Holy Spirit coming to dwell in us, to give us hearts of flesh, to cause us to obey and to walk in his statutes. It's interesting. As you read scripture, God often talks about the sin of Israel and the church as harlotry. He uses marriage as an analogy to describe his love and his faithfulness to us. And he uses an adulterous wife as the image to describe Israel's idolatry. And I think the point is that we would see sin against God as the most intimate betrayal. That sin is not just rules, breaking rules or being careless, but that sin is an intimate betrayal against our faithful God. Adultery, adultery against our perfectly faithful God. And that is the miracle of the gospel that while we were still sinners, deep in intimate betrayal, Christ died for us, offering us new life and a new covenant through the simple act of repentance. God made a way to reconcile himself to his people because God does not abandon his people. And that is the story of God. This is the hope that I cling to when the world feels harsh when my heart feels broken, when I don't understand the why. And I doubt, like Abraham, I am a doubter. I do not always understand the patience of God. Kyle Worley says this, oftentimes it feels like the promises of God are too long delayed. I resonate with that. I feel that in my bones. Why does God allow this world to go on so long, to run so wrongly? I don't fully understand the brokenness of it all. I don't fully understand how this suffering world fits with a sovereign God. I know we have an enemy. I know he's real and that he seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. I know that my sin contributes to the brokenness of the world. I know that there is brokenness from the sin of others and the evil and the havoc that they can cause. And I know that some things like cancer in a nine-year-old girl are the result of the cursed crown that we live on. 
that the fall in chapter three did not just affect and corrupt, it, corrupt our souls. It broke our bodies and our minds. There are lots of causes of suffering in this world and there are lots of unanswered whys, but I am a doubter who wants to believe. And this is what I know, that God has not abandoned his people. He is with us. He is for us. He is love and goodness. And I have to believe that the things that I don't understand do not negate the truth of the things that I do know. I can wrestle with doubt and bring all of my questions and confusions before the throne of God. And that is where I find myself. I bring those, those questions and feelings to the Lord in prayer and to his word. But I also believe in the truths that I know. You do not have to have all the answers fireside. You can come with your questions and your doubts and your wrestlings. You too can be the doubter who wants to believe, to believe that God has not abandoned his people, that when we fall short, he is with us, that when we are suffering at the hands of an enemy, he is with us, that when we struggle in the brokenness of cancer and death, he is with us, Emmanuel. But the story is not over. We are in the middle. And the middle can feel messy. And the middle can cause despair. That was true for the churches in Asia. When the book of Revelation was written, the churches in Asia Minor were experiencing immense persecution. The Roman govern government were torturing and killing Christians for their belief in God. And when the book of Revelation was written, there were still 200 more years of persecution ahead. The church in Asia Minor understood grief. Their friends were dying. Their leaders were being imprisoned. They had seen Paul and Peter die for their faith. I imagine it was a time of great sorrow and confusion, of wondering where is God in the midst of the chaos when it looks like the curses of this world are winning? But God does not abandon his people. And he sent John a vision to comfort the early church and to comfort us today. See, we are in the messy middle, but God has already told us the ending. That one day he will return and he will redeem this world completely. He will restore all the brokenness back to right. Even our cursed ground and our broken bodies and our broken brains will be made perfect. He will destroy the enemy and usher in a new heaven and new earth. And it will be made perfect. Revelation 21 verses 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, 
I am making all things new. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you so much. We thank you that you are a God who has not abandoned his people, that you are faithful to us, Lord, even when we are unfaithful to you. Lord, that you have not forsaken of us or abandoned us, even when we feel like you're silent, that you are there, that you have a plan of redemption, that sometimes it feels like the enemy is winning, Lord. Sometimes it feels like the brokenness of this earth will suffocate us, Lord, but you are there. You are in the messy middle and you have made a way through Christ. You have brought the promised son, the redeemer who will reconcile us to you. And Lord, you have told us the ending. You have told us that one day all will be made right. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you for that hope. And we pray, Lord, we pray in the messy middle Lord, that you will help us to be doubters who believe, doubters who come to you again and again, who trust in your goodness and your faithfulness, even when we don't understand it all. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have made all things new. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.